0: Welcome to Never Just a Dog Podcast. I'm your host John Littlefair. And today we have the privilege of featuring an extraordinary guest on the show. The New York Times best-selling author and international speaker, Michael Hinkson. Michael's life journey is nothing short of awe-inspiring. Blind since birth, he faced one of the darkest days in modern history, the 9/11 attacks, and emerged not only a survivor, but a testament to the incredible bond between humans and animals. His guide dog, Roselle, played a pivotal role in this story of teamwork, resilience, and the indomitable will to not just live, but thrive. All of this is beautifully chronicled in his best-selling book, Thunderdog. Allow me to share the words of the late Emmy award-winning broadcaster, Larry King. Chapter by chapter of this intriguing work will keep you spellbound. Thunderdog celebrates the power of the human and animal bond. We all can learn life lessons from this incredible story. But Michael's impact extends beyond the pages of his book. He takes his experiences and lessons to audiences around the world, delivering compelling presentations. We are privileged to dive deep into Michael's experiences, insights, and the profound impact of his presentations. Get ready for an inspiring journey with Michael Hinkson right here on Never Just a Dog podcast. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode, Mike. And I must mention straight away, I love your middle name, Blizzard. You like that, huh? (laughs) (laughs) And I love your book, Thunderdog. It was absolutely amazing. I want to dive straight in, Mike. I'd love to know how Roselle came into your life.
1: Well, I got got all of my guide dogs from a school here in California. Well, California, and they also have an Oregon campus. The school is called Guide Dogs for the Blind, and Roselle was the fifth dog that I got from there. I got my first dog in July of 1964, and then we got Roselle, in. it had to be November of 1999, but um, she was raised and trained by the school.
0: I'm really interested to find out, how did Roselle match with you and you with Roselle?
1: Well... So, and that's a, that's a good question. Um, The way the process works is that when a person decides to get a guide dog from any of the guide dog schools, and I'm sure it's the same way with Australia guide dogs, the school tries to learn as much as they can about the person, what their needs are, what they're going to use a dog for, how fast they walk, um, all they can physically about the person. and they do an in-home interview, and they usually walk with the person a little bit to see how o- oriented they are to their environment and so on. So they really want to get as much detail so that they can look at the dogs that they have, and then they the the schools usually have a number of trainers, and trainers have strings of dogs that they've trained, and they try to match the dog and the dog personality and all the physical characteristics and everything else about the dog with the individual with their physical characteristics, their personalities, and so on. So you don't want, for example, to give a very tentative dog to someone who's extremely confident and walks fast. And so there is a very detailed process to match the dog to the person. And usually it works out well. Sometimes it doesn't. My sixth guide dog, Merrill, and I worked for 18 months, and then she just kind of got afraid of being a guide dog, um, and she be, she got that way because she was a dog that, as I describe it, was a Type A personality who couldn't leave work at the office. So when we um, whenever we were home, and she wasn't in harness and she could just be a dog, she always had to still follow me around. She wouldn't play with our other dogs or anything, and that stress finally got to her, which I think is a lesson in and of itself. But the, the issue is that the dogs are matched as closely as can be with personality, physical characteristics, and everything else so that the, the two really are a match. And so when it came time to get Roselle, I had conversations with the training staff and filled out all the paperwork, although they already have a lot of information about me because we had already done four dogs. And so... The only uh, additional requirement that I had was that I would not accept a dog that disliked cats. My wife and I always had cats. I never really had cats before I married Karen, but Karen always had cats. So it was extremely important to me not to have a dog that would have any problem with a cat. So they had to be raised around cats, and dogs and cats can get along really well if they Grow up learning to do that, and so Roselle was one of those who was fine with that. And so the bottom line is that uh, we were matched in uh, November of nineteen ninety nine, and we started to work together, and we worked until March of two thousand seven together.
0: Because you're working in a, as a regional sales manager role at the World Trade Center, and you'd go in with Roselle.
1: Yes, the at first I went in with Linny, Um Well, actually, no. Um, Linny was before we moved into the offices. So um Linny only worked about three years and she had to retire. She was bit by a tick, and it uh the tick had Lyme's disease, it passed it on to her, and it morphed into a disease called glomerulonephritis, nephritis, which is a disease of the kidney where the kidney passes good stuff out through the kidneys as well as the waste material. So she she had to retire. We did have her for three more years, though, after she retired. She was a wonderful dog. and uh, She and Roselle got along really well and played together.
0: Oh, you have to tell me more about Lenny.
1: Lenny was the kind of dog that um, if you looked at her, she'd flip over on her back to get petted. So one day, <laughs> one day we were in the Admirals Club, which is the lounge for American Airlines at Los Angeles Airport. And I heard a voice, and I knew the voice. Um, And I walked up to the counter. Um, This guy was getting his, some things done with his tickets, but I knew the voice from television. It was Peter Falk, Columbo. And so while the flight, while the reservation person was, Stepping away to get his stuff done, I just turned to him and I said, "Don't you hate paperwork?" Because I, you know, I knew that he didn't like to do autographs, and I didn't want an autograph. I wanted to talk with him. And he and he said, "Yeah, you know, they got to do what they got to do with this paper paperwork. It's really kind of a mess, but they got to do it, you know." And then he says, "So what's your dog's name?" And I said, "Her name is Linnie." About that time, Lenny flipped over in harness. Linnie flipped over. <laughs> so Peter Falk goes down on the floor and spends five minutes talking to Linnie while the reservations person is not there and. Finally, he goes, Lenny, I can't stay down here and scratch you all night. And I said, yes, you can. Just ask her. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, she's a great dog. And then, you know, then Roselle.
0: Michael, a question for you. And in your own words, what is the role of a guide dog?
1: Well, so let me explain first what a guide dog is and what a, guy, what a guide dog is and what a guide dog isn't. Um, because people think that the dog does everything and the blind person just kind of follows along because the general view is if you're blind, you can't do anything. And it's so unfortunate that people do that um, because they have no clue. And what they need to understand is all being blind means is that we're going to use different techniques to do the same things that you do. Blind people can drive cars if you want proof there's a website, go to www.blinddriverchallenge.org. And you will see a gentleman driving a car, literally. That's not an autonomous vehicle. It's literally getting information from technology and driving a car around the Daytona Speedway right before the 2011 Rolex 24 race. And we won't spend more time on that right now. But the fact of the matter is blindness isn't the problem. It's people's attitudes. And as far as a guide dog is concerned, 10% of blind people use guide dogs no more. It's about the average. And what a guide dog does is that it makes sure that we walk safely, but it is not the dog's job. And I don't want it to be the dog's job to know where I want to go and how to get there. The purpose of the dog is to make sure that we walk safely. I have to know where to go. I have to know how to get there. And I have to give the dog directions as we travel to do that. And how I do that, gee, how do you do that as a sighted person? You know, to describe that to me would take as long as it would be for me to describe what I do to you. The fact of the matter is, you don't need to see to do things. I've traveled to New Zealand, haven't been to Australia yet, but after September 11th, I began speaking publicly full-time, and I still do. I would love to come to Australia sometime and bring Alamo, who's my current Black Lab guide dog. Um, Alamo's been to um, some some foreign countries, and um, Roselle went to New Zealand. Roselle went to uh, – no, Roselle didn't go to Ireland. We couldn't get approval in time. But uh, Roselle went to Japan. Roselle went to Korea. Roselle went to New Zealand. And so it would be fun to come and, and do some speaking in Australia. But going back to what we were talking about, the dog's job is to make sure that we walk safely, and I give the dog commands. That was especially crucial on September 11th because what happened is we were in our office that day and I saw so our office was on the 78th floor of Tower One and I was there to lead seminars that we were gonna be doing for some of our reseller partners and showing them how to sell our products. And then I would be their initial and their main contact within the office as the manager to help them be successful, but of course, That didn't happen because the World Trade Center was attacked, and so we didn't get to do the seminars. But what I had done ahead of time was really spent a lot of effort to learn all I could about the World Trade Center, where things were in the World Trade Center. I walked around the World Trade Center, um, sometimes with Roselle, but oftentimes at first with a cane. And the reason I used a cane is that if I'm walking around the World Trade Center and we're walking along a corridor and there's something in the middle of it, Roselle will go around it. Or on the first floor, for example, there was a shopping mall, literally with a lot of kiosks and so on. And I wanted to find out what was at the kiosk. So I used a cane because Roselle would just pass them by, right? Because she's just going to go forward until she can't. But the bottom line is I learned all about the World Trade Center. I asked and learned about emergency evacuation procedures and so on learned how to find all the emergency exits so that I knew what to do if there was an emergency. I didn't need to worry about reading signs or not um, because I had the information. And that's that knowledge that created a mindset in me that allowed me to walk down and walk out of the World Trade Center without being afraid and giving Roselle directions every step of the way because I worked really hard to make sure that she didn't get in the habit of going one way to get somewhere. Because if if I let her always go the way one way and didn't find other ways to get places, and if that way were blocked on September 11th, we wouldn't have made it out. So it was really important for Roselle not to anticipate and know where to go, but just to guide and follow my directions and keep us safe, which is what we did. So on September 11th, when the, when the planes hit the building, We started the evacuation process right away because the building tipped a bunch and then it came back. There was no question about leaving. And Roselle and I, like any guide dog team, really develops a team. That is to say, she looks to me as the team leader to keep her focused and tell her I'm okay. And she had to sense that there was a lot of fear on September 11th and a a lot of concern. But I kept just telling her, good girl, Roseau, what a good dog, good girl, keep going, what a good dog, and praising her and keeping her focused. Meanwhile, she was able to guide and walk safely, and and more important, never acted nervous, which told me that whatever was going on wasn't uh, showing her something else that she should be worried about. So it's a synergistic team that works really well. It's a very close-knit team. And so we walked down the stairs, and then we got outside together. Whenever I'm giving an interview or I'm talking to people, I make it really clear, don't you ever say that the guide dog led the blind man down the stairs. Guide dogs don't lead, they guide. It's not their job to lead. It's not their job to take over the process. It is a team, and I explain the things that I explain to you. You know, and going down the stairs is not magical. Could I have gotten down the stairs without Roselle? Sure. I could have just used a cane. I mean, what is there to going downstairs? You walk down some stairs, you turn, you go down more stairs, you turn, you go down more stairs, and you keep going. But I, in general, I chose and choose to use a guide dog just because I like that way of of being safe and walking successfully over just using a cane. There is nothing wrong or negative about using a cane. I can use a cane and travel very effectively as well, but a cane is a contact device, so it finds something in the middle of a sidewalk or in the middle of wherever we're walking, then I explore and go around it. And when I'm using Roselle, if she sees something and she can just go around it, she will, which is what we were talking about earlier. If she can't, she stops, and I have to go through the same process of figuring out what to do. But it's a, it is a process. But working with Roselle is what I choose to do. Working with Alamo now is what I choose to do. I like the relationship, I like the team building, and I've learned more about building teams from working with eight guide dogs than I ever learned from all the experts and management people, in, because it's very personal and very specific working with these dogs.
0: Michael, post 9-11, you're interviewed quite a few times, including on the Larry King live show. Did you find this helpful to share your personal experiences doing these interviews?
1: Absolutely. I I I've been very quick to say that for me, the interviews were therapy and my wife and I decided that I would do the interviews if it would help people move on from September 11th and teach people about blindness and teach them about guide dogs and so on, then I was very willing to do the interviews the interviews all got started because the day after the World Trade Center attacks, I contacted Guide Dogs for the Blind and, among other people, spoke to Joanne Ritter, who was their public information officer at the time. And she said, do you mind if we write a little story about you? And I said, no, that's fine. I wasn't thinking straight. I said, sure, go ahead. And then she said, you know, you're probably going to get asked to be on television. What show do you want to go on first? So I just flippantly said, Larry King Live. And didn't even think about it. Well, that was on a Wednesday. And the next day, Joanne called back and said, you're scheduled to be on Larry King Live tomorrow, Friday, the 14th, to be interviewed by Larry. And that was how it really began. But the story was already out and some other places already called and asked for interviews even prior to Larry, newspapers and so on. But I went on Larry and it was the first of five interviews. And then so you were mentioning Thunderdog, Larry King wrote the foreword for Thunderdog. The last time we chatted directly was in 2006 on the fifth anniversary. And I asked Larry if he would write the foreword when the book was written. And he said, absolutely. He didn't even let me finish. He said, you bet. And so he wrote the foreword and did a, a great job. And, and it was one of the things that helped make it be a number one New York Times bestseller book. Um, so we're proud about that. But, um, you know, Larry, and then just so many other places after that. And for me, it was all about trying to educate people. And and I continue to do that today.
0: And speaking of today, what was the moment you decided to leave your sales manager position and pursue a career as a professional speaker and author?
1: Well, um, my wife was one of the first people to tell me keep in mind when you're talking to people outside of this area that for them, the World Trade Center was only as big as their television screen or the pictures in their newspapers, which is true. And unfortunately the other part about it was that my company wanted people, you know, wanted us to get back to work. Well, first of all, our office was destroyed fans. We didn't have an office. And second of all, people were attending 5, 6 and 7 funerals a day and weren't buying anything so it it was a challenge but it it was a contributor to the fact that when people started calling me and asking me to come and speak to their organizations and saying, "We'll hire you to come and to talk about lessons we should learn and so on," it it made the decision to do that easier. It's it's unfortunate that that they didn't really understand what was what was happening, but that that happens with people. You know we we I heard a lot we we got to get back to normal. We all got to get back to normal. And I hated that phrase because, as I learned, normal would never be the same again. With the pandemic, people keep saying, we got to get back to normal. Normal will never be the same again, and we need to learn what the new normal is. And there's a lot of lessons to be learned from dogs. You know, dogs live in the now. And um, we are, we're so much focused on looking at everything around us and worrying about everything, even though we don't have control over most of it, which is another lesson that I talk about. Don't worry about what you can't control. Focus on the things you can. Let the rest take care of itself, and you'll be a lot less stressed. Um, but dogs live in the now. And the quicker we realize that and the value of that, the better it is for all of us.
0: And do you have key elements you focus on with your, let's say, conference speaking, or does it depend on the specific audience and organizers' requirements?
1: When someone talks to me about coming to speak, I want to spend time with them to learn what they're looking for. I don't read a speech. I customize every talk that I give. And sometimes I've had to change what I was thinking of saying at the last minute because of events and things that that change. Um, but I believe in customizing every talk that I give. And I also believe that I don't talk to an audience, I talk with an audience. And so it's important for me to establish a relationship with whatever audience I'm talking to or with and to really know as much as I can about them. So if I'm going to a conference to speak, I always like to get there early and listen to speakers who speak ahead of me that works until i'm the one delivering the first talk and then i have to spend more time asking people more questions up front <laughs> but that's okay um but i've done that enough that i i can can cope with that just fine but i do talk a lot about trust and teamwork and i talk about the very fact that what i develop with each of my guide dogs like Alamo now and Roselle back in in the time of the september 11th attacks is we develop a a really, in every sense of the word, a team relationship. We are a team. We each need to respect the job of the other, and there are times that each of us need to take control of the team. So for example, if I'm walking down a sidewalk and I get to a curb and Roselle stops, or now Alamo stops, and I decide I'm gonna walk straight ahead, I will tell the dog forward, and we start across the street and suddenly the dog jerks back and pulls me or tries to pull me back to the curb, I'm not going to argue with the dog. I will let the dog take control because my training tells me there's probably a reason why the dog is doing that. And usually nowadays, it's because it was a hybrid vehicle and I didn't even hear it. But it could be any number of things. But the bottom line is we each have a job to do And it works best when we respect each other's jobs and we respect each other. And believe me, dogs really understand the idea of respect in their way. And and it is all about developing a teaming relationship. And so I talk about teamwork partly from the relationships that I've had with eight dogs and partly from developing sales teams and owning my own company and doing other things like that for many years. So I talk about teamwork and trust. I talk about leadership. Um, One of my favorite topics nowadays is moving from diversity to inclusion. Because if you talk about diversity, it's usually about race, sexual orientation, and gender and such things. But no one ever mentions disabilities, or it's incredibly rare that they do. In fact, my position nowadays is that Every person on the planet has a disability. For most of you, you're light dependent. You don't do well in the dark. And if the power suddenly goes out, you scramble to find a smartphone or a flashlight. And if you can't, you're in a world of hurt because you can't do things. And it doesn't bother me a single bit. And And I've been in situations where that's happened. So the bottom line is that we need to really change our thoughts about what disability means because the whole idea of disability, disability does not mean lack of ability. Disability is a characteristic that everyone has. They manifest it differently, but it's there for everyone. So anyway, I talk about moving from diversity to inclusion. Um, I talk a lot about my story. People want me to tell the World Trade Center story. And so that becomes a part of what I do as well. I believe that the skills that I have now as a speaker allow me to really look at a wide variety of options in terms of what we do for, for speeches. And so I work with people across the board in terms of what they want me to talk about. And then we, we find something that works. It's been very successful. In 2014, I spoke at an emergency preparedness and safety conference in Washoe County, Nevada. Last year, in January, one of the people who was at that conference in 2014 published an article specifically talking about my talk. How often do you get somebody who writes an article and says wonderful things about you from a speech that they heard nine years earlier? So-
0: That's amazing, incredible.
1: You know, it is. And um, so I I share that article with people when they are thinking about hiring me as, as a speaker. But But the reality is that I am in a position to be able to talk to people about teamwork and trust and the things that I talk about in very personal ways, partly because of the relationships and what I've learned with dogs, partly because of the relationships and the things that I've built managing and working in sales teams. And they, the techniques may be a little different, but the processes and what you get out of it are the same.
0: I wish to go back to Roselle in... 2011, very sadly, she would pass away.
1: In 2004, um, she went in for a physical, which she did every year, and the veterinarians at Guide Dogs for the Blind, because I was working up there at the time, noted that her blood platelet count was way down. So they monitored it. It, Normally, the platelet count should be between 250,000 and 500,000 platelets per, uh, I believe, milliliter, microliter or milliliter of blood. And when they caught it with her, hers was at 49, and it dropped down to 10,000. So it was really very low. And they diagnosed her with a condition called immune-mediated thrombocytopenia, which is also something that humans can get. And basically, it's the immune system attacks the platelets of, of the blood. Usually it's a genetic issue, but there was no evidence of that with Roselle. So the assumption is the other the other alternative is that um, you get it if you ingest some toxins. And that's what we think happened with Roselle. And it took three years to manifest, but it did. Um, she continued to work, to work for three more years, but it was still there. We got her on a regimen of medications and so on. And so... In 2007, she did have to retire, um, and she she continued to, to stay with me and so on. But in 2011, just suddenly the body started not doing very well, and within a very short time, um, she passed. So it was June 26th of 2011, and um, you know we we honor her to this day. Um, she's a wonderful dog, and she will always have a a place, a warm place in in our hearts. And um, so I'm I'm glad that we had the time with her that we did and that she was able to do all the things that she did. Um, She was a very focused dog when she had to be. And when uh, work was not required, she was a very playful pixie kind of dog. She was great. But on you know June 26th, she passed. At that time, I had, um, she had retired in 2007. I had my seventh guide dog, Africa. And Fantasia was my wife's service dog. Fantasia figured out how to be a service dog for my wife, Karen, who had been in a wheelchair her whole life. Fantasia was actually Africa's mother. So we had Fantasia and Africa in the veterinarian's office. When Roselle passed, so they knew it, um, because we felt that that they needed to 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 be there, and and I think that they understood full well what was was going on. If they hadn't been there, and suddenly Roselle wasn't around, it would have been, a, I think, a lot more stressful for them. And I and I had been told that that's the best way to do things by others in the past, and by veterinarians and so on. So we did that. But she passed, and then the next day I wrote the tribute to her and put it up on Facebook and so on, and that's what is in ThunderDog today. Tell me about
0: the Roselle's Dream Foundation.
1: Well, and we're actually winding down the foundation now, but we started a foundation in 2011 when the book was published to help... um, People with technology, and to help do some education about blindness, but mainly to help blind people get technology. And um, and we did we did do some work in that regard, but just over time, too many other things are going on, and we just haven't been able to devote a lot of time and effort to it. So the foundation um, is is going away, unfortunately, I guess in some senses, but it hasn't been very visible, so it's it's okay. Um, but we're going to continue to support where we can anyway. Um, But the idea was, we called it Roselle's Dream Foundation because um, it was a a dream of mine, and I would say Roselle's, to uh, get blind people doing stuff.
0: Do you have an involvement with blind organizations and guide dog organizations?
1: I'm the vice president of the board of directors of the Colorado Center for the Blind, which is a training center for blind people. I chair the board of an organization in Northern California called the Baum Center for the Blind. Those are the two main ones. I also work with an organization called Independence Science, which is a company that makes products to help make laboratory equipment more accessible for blind people. I'm not directly connected to guide dogs at this point, but we, you know, we obviously talk about it and still support. And I am also a member of an organization in the United States, the, the largest organization of blind people, the National Federation of the Blind, which is a consumer organization of blind people in the country.
0: And on top of this all, you have an incredible podcast called Unstoppable Mindset, where inclusion, diversity, and the unexpected meet.
1: So it's mostly unexpected. That is, it's things other than inclusion and diversity. It's about people coming on, telling their stories, why they do what they do. The idea is to inspire people who listen to think that they can be more unstoppable than they think they are.
0: You're a busy man. Tell me what some of the other interests that you have when you've got time to squeeze them in.
1: I love to collect old radio shows uh, as a hobby, including uh, a bunch from Australia, I would point out. Australia did their own versions of a lot of the the radio shows, Lex Radio Theatre and others. So I collect radio shows, and I've actually participated in a couple of recreations of old shows. Um, I work with, um, and I am try to help where I can, a, an organization called YesterdayUSA.net. So www.YesterdayUSA.net plays old radio shows around the world, literally, um, on the internet. So anybody can go to www.YesterdayUSA.net and listen to old radio shows all day long. They actually have two networks what they call the Red and the Blue Network, which is the way NBC originally was here in the country. There were two versions of NBC, the Red Network and the Blue Network. But yesterday, USA.net is a great place to listen to lots of radio shows. And through them, I got involved in the Radio Enthusiasts of Puget Sound, which is a radio, a club in Washington State that promotes old radio shows and in, December well yeah December of last year and we um we are recreating some of the old radio shows so I get to go be an actor and uh, and <laughs> fantastic, so fantastic it'll be fun you know to to do some of that and it will also be broadcast on yesterdayusa.net but i do that i'm a, an amateur radio operator but i don't have my ham rig up and running right now i really need to get that going and i like to read i
0: love to read actually my dad had a ham radio, amateur radio for mm-hmm. ham some radio. time, even on the farm, and then he'd be talking to people all over the world, so oh, yeah.
1: Well, I enjoyed it and and I do enjoy it. I did it in college and I've, and and i've I've done it a bunch. It's a lot of fun to do.
0: I just love voice, spoken word, I just love. Yeah. and even a lot of the sporting events was always amazing on the radio.
1: Well, the advantage of radio, of course, is that you really get to use your imagination, whereas television spells everything out, so it's not nearly as fun.
0: I oh, want to go to present day, so Alamo and Stitch. Well, firstly, Alamo. How did Alamo, <laughs> your current guide dog, come into your life?
1: Well, again, the same the same thing. I went to Guide Dogs for the Blind, and this time I went to the Oregon campus of Guide Dogs. Um, When Africa retired in 2017, I noticed that she was walking a little bit slower. She'd been working for, you know, nine years almost, and she wasn't seeing as well at night and walking slower, so it was time to retire her. So I sent a a note or contacted guide dogs, and um, they had a a fairly long waiting list at the time, so I knew it was going to be about a year before I could go get a new guide dog. And... I decided to go to the Oregon campus because I could get a dog there in February of 2018, whereas if I had waited to go to San Rafael, where the main campus is, it would have been June. And I had worked and visited around the Oregon campus a lot, but I had never gotten a dog from there, so I thought it'd be fun. Anyway, so on the 9th of February, Africa retired officially. And, um, the, the people, when, when guide dogs is, is raising dogs, they stay at the school for their first eight or nine weeks of life. And then they go live with a family or people called there who are called puppy raisers, people who raise raise them for about a year, teach them basic skills, sit down and and so on. And Alamo or Africa's puppy raisers always said that if we, um, couldn't keep Africa, they wanted her. Well, um, as I mentioned earlier, we also had Fantasia, who was Africa's mother. And with Karen being in a wheelchair, if we got another dog and kept Africa and Fantasia, that would have been a lot for Karen to take care of when I traveled and spoke. So we let um, Bill and Peggy, Africa's puppy raisers, take her. So on the 9th of February, about noon, they came. Africa was uh, there wagging her tail. She knew them all and all that. She walked out the door and never even gave me a backward glance. Thanks, Africa. What a nice <laughs> dog you are. <laughs> anyway, and two days later, I then went up to Oregon to to get Alamo. I didn't know it was Alamo at the time. Um, they don't. They wait until you're up there because they really want to work with the people and and they they make decisions almost at the last minute. They really want to get as much information as they can. But I got Alamo and um, worked out very well, and he has been with me ever since. We came home, and we had rescued a cat in 2015. Um, It was some neighbors of ours. Um, The wife had died, and the husband was going to go into an assisted living facility. They had a cat, but the guy didn't want to take the cat and just told his caregiver and his sister who were cleaning out his apartment, just take the cat to the pound. I don't want the cat. And we said, absolutely not. We didn't want a cat. We were living in an apartment at the time. We didn't want a cat just because we didn't have the room, we thought. But Karen, since 1994, had been a professional quilter. And I made the mistake of asking what the cat's name was. And I was told that the cat's name was Stitch. Do you (laughs) think a cat named Stitch is ever going to leave a quilter? So Stitch joined the family so in 2018 when I came home with Alamo stitch was a little bit testy she hissed and stuff like that and and poor Alamo we didn't know what to do with this thing anyway um it wasn't long before stitch decided that Alamo wasn't a bad creature after all and uh, they've been they've been friends ever since they they bump noses and they talk to each other and they they do pretty well together Alamo doesn't chase her um I think sometimes stitch tries to get him to to play more and chase her, but, but he won't do that, which I'm glad about, (laughs) (laughs) but they get along well. So what's
0: next for you, Mike, anyway, what's your ongoing life plans, more talking relaxation? Do you ever actually stop? Do you ever not work?
1: Oh, sure. I, as I said, I like to read and I like to relax and I'll watch TV some and all that. So yeah, for me, I think the, the big issue is though, that I um, wasn't able to speak for a while. And then when Karen became ill in 2022, I also couldn't travel because I wouldn't leave her alone. So I'm starting to ramp up speaking again. And it's kind of starting almost anew. Um, But that's why I mentioned that if anyone wants to hire a speaker, I'd love to talk with them about that. We, We ought to be able to find some ways to um, be able to come over and speak. Somebody should go get a hold of Richard Branson and see if he'll sponsor me to come over and speak. But, 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 you know, the idea is that that I do want to ramp up speaking. I also do work with a company I mentioned a little bit, I think earlier, called A C C E S S I B E, dot com. Accessibee is a company that makes products that help make the internet more accessible and usable for people with a variety of different kinds of disabilities. And so that's they're the ones who sponsor the Unstoppable Mindset podcast, which you are invited to to come on. Tomorrow we publish episode 200 since August of 2021.
0: Michael, we would love to see you in Australia, or maybe I can fly to the States to hear you speak there. What is the best way for people to get hold of you?
1: Now, if people are interested in exploring that, Go to my website, www.michaelhingson.com. That's M-I-C-H-A-E-L-H-I-N-G-S-O-N.com. But I would love to to come down. It's uh, something that we need to make happen.
0: Michael also has a new book that will be published later this year. The title is Live Like a Guide Dog, True Stories from a Blind Man and His Dogs About Being Brave, Overcoming Adversity, and Moving Forward in Faith an excerpt from the publisher's description, A Guide Dog's Guide to Life's Most Important Lessons. Michael Hinkson's inspiring true story captivated the world when he and his guide dog Roselle escaped the Twin Towers together on 9-11, a story that became the New York Times best-selling book, Thunder Dog. During decades of walking with guide dogs, he's learned a surprising truth that helped save his life that day. Being afraid can be a positive thing one that prepares us to deal with any situation that befalls us. In Live Like a Guide Dog, he reveals how to get equipped for whatever obstacles or challenges you may encounter as you make your way through the world. Train yourself to be brave, just like a guide dog's training equips handler and dog to prepare for the unexpected. Learn to use your natural fear reactions as a way to focus and concentrate to make better decisions and turn your fear into courage and confidence. Apply 11 principles Michael has learned with his guide dogs to overcome the fears that you face every day. I'll post a link to pre-order the book in the show notes in your podcast listening app. My name is John Littlefair, and thank you for tuning in to this very special episode of Never Just a Dog.